I'm Eddie Merckx. You listen to The Bicycle Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Your radio is tuned to Resonance 104.4 FM. And if you were listening to the previous edition of The Bike Show, you'll have heard an extended interview with Alistair Humphreys, a man who cycled the hard way around the world, covering his journey through Africa and up through Latin America. We pick up the story as Alistair heads up into Central America. My original plan was to go through the Darien Gap, the jungle that links Colombia to Panama, and it was a, a, a trip I'd always dreamed of doing. There's no road there, and it's famously dangerous and exciting. And I'd always thought, yeah, I'll definitely do that. But I suppose everyone has their own personal thresholds of risk, and when I was in Colombia, I just decided that that 50-kilometer stretch was just too dangerous for me. It's just jam-packed with uh, drug dealers and guerrilla bandits, and, uh, and it was just beyond my what I was willing to do so instead I went by yacht which is far more sensible through through the Caribbean and the Panama Canal and up towards Mexico and I really enjoyed coming up up there towards the US it was of saying goodbye to Latin America and a chance to reflect on how much I enjoyed it but also I was really looking forward to North America and and just the totally different world that awaited. Where did you make the border crossing into the US? In Nogales in Arizona um, and that was so strange cycling up through northern Mexico it's um, just becomes increasingly uh, desert like and the towns fade away and they become poorer and poorer and poorer and if you didn't know better you'd feel like you're just cycling off the edge of the world and you think the whole everything's fizzling out and then suddenly you get to to um, the border and one side's all very very poor you cross the border and suddenly bang there you are in America And I was really excited to arrive in America and, and I, I just saw it with such fresh, open eyes, really, the wealth and the efficiency and the success and I, I absolutely loved it. They had some doubts about whether they wanted to let you in though, right? Yeah, they did actually at the border because I had, well, firstly I was filthy and ripped clothes and generally dirty and stinking. Uh, but m- the, my problem was my passport, which had visa stamps for Iran and Pakistan and Syria and Sudan and all these axis of evil countries. And they were very uh, suspicious about why on earth I'd been wanting to go through those countries. And they didn't really believe my explanation that they were very nice countries and, I'd had a lot, and I was cycling through them because I actually wanted to. So they took a bit of persuading on that. And then America itself must have been a breather, in a way, after all the privations. You know, must have blended in again amongst, you know, tons of uh, cycle tourists. I mean, even for a country that loves the automobile, you know, they, they do have people that ride around on bikes, many of whom listen to the bike show. What were your highlights of, of the U.S.? I, d- I did love America for all those reasons. And America's funny in that they there's the two extremes. There's the, the car-driving slobs and then there's the really uh, fit athletic outdoor people um, 
who really welcomed me and I, I found myself just being passed from one nice bike loving family to the next so you were riding up the uh, the left coast California and Oregon, yeah. Left in all all its senses, yeah. I really enjoyed it up the up the Pacific Highway, and it was it really was a holiday. It was you know they've got roads, they've got road signs, they speak English, um, and I it was just so easy. The downside though of being in a rich country is suddenly you become very poor again, and whereas in somewhere like Africa I'd been able to stop at little cafes and eat snacks and meals when I wanted to suddenly in America you become too poor to make the most of any of the luxuries on offer so there I just existed on peanut butter sandwiches and um, super noodles which got pretty sickening after a while yeah not too good for the insides I wouldn't imagine after the US I rode up through Canada British Columbia and then into the Yukon and finally on into Alaska and that and that was just um wonderful really for cycling so it's a american canada countries that are rich enough and advanced enough to take care of their wilderness areas which very few countries do so it's so it was great to cycle through somewhere that was properly pristine beautiful well looked after um, and really exciting as well it felt like real the history there is so young so i felt quite tangibly linked to the explorers and adventurers who'd gone through in their own time and particularly the uh, gold rush guys going for the gold rush of the Yukon just a hundred years ago I, I got quite into the history of that and I could imagine myself heading along on my own adventure not as tough as theirs but exciting anyway okay well with the conclusion of the uh, second continent we are um, making the turn here at Richmond Park heading up the hill I suppose fairly appropriately this little uphill bit which is anyone who comes down to Richmond to ride it's the little bit where you have to get out of your saddle to honk up the hill if you're doing the road route we're actually on the off-road route it's the the sting in the tail of Richmond Park and I think for anyone crossing Siberia I mean that's got to be a daunting prospect uh, yeah it was it was very daunting so I'd, I'd been on the road for three years by now so in one sense I was completely accustomed to the life and it had become my life so I was pretty blasé about all the issues of routes and massive distances and visas and all that kind of stuff but it was still a big big distance um, and physically probably the, the toughest thing I've ever done temperatures were down to minus 40 um, the Russians only give a 30-day tourist visa so I'd had to wangle us a 90-day uh, business visa and and there was just a massive distance to go on frozen roads much of the route dependent upon whether or not the the uh, the rivers would be frozen solid and we could cross over on the ice and oh it was just brutal it was freezing cold exhausting and truly miserable but uh, i'm very very glad i did it how did your bike stand up to 40 degrees below zero. I was quite worried about... They're not made for that kind of temperature, are they? Um, I don't think it would be a big market for it, no. I, I worried about the grease and the oil um, and whether that would freeze solid and whether the tyres would shatter. But no one could really give me any sensible information, so I just had to go for it and find out. And I, I wiped as much grease and oil as possible off I actually never had any problem with that. The, the biggest difficulty really was with uh, when I had punctures. 
trying to trying to fiddle around fixing a puncture at minus 40 is a pretty miserable experience. The tyre would be frozen on to the, the rim, everything would be frozen, so I'd have to, have to uh, light my cooking stove and then hold the wheel, the, uh, the rim, into the, into the flame, but obviously not too much, because uh, that would be a disaster, just to thaw it enough so I could uh, try and prise off the tyre. And then um, once you've got the tyre off, your hands are freezing, shaking them around, and also um, just by not cycling anymore, my whole body temperature would be dropping dangerously low, so you'd have to stop for intervals just to run around, doing a chicken dance, something like that, to try and warm up again. You know, you have to then pump up the inner tube a little bit to make it take shape, but that would be frozen, so I have to put, put things down my pants. That was my general source of warmth, so I have to put everything down my trousers just to, to thaw them out a bit. Uh, the plastic on the pump would break, you have to super glue it back together, um, and it was just an absolute nightmare. It's one of the worst experiences, puncture experiences that I've ever had, I think. Did you ever feel like you'd taken it too far, and now is the time to, you know, make that phone call? get yourself out. I did in Russia, yeah. I, the combination of the cold and the distance to be travelled before the visa ran out and my complete inexperience of those conditions, I did quite often question if I was going to get through or not. I didn't think I was going to die, but I did often think I was, wasn't going to make it. And you spend a lot, well I spend a lot of time in those situations trying to make excuses or hoping you'll fall off and break your leg so you've got a nice excuse to give up. <laughs> um, but if you spend enough hours and days trying to concoct the perfect excuse, eventually you'll get to the end and you think, oh, I'm glad I didn't give up on that bit. The 3,000 miles through Siberia, I think, gives the game away that you're not an epic cycle tourist, but a kind of potential explorer. You know, this is not something that you would choose to do for pleasure. This is something that you do to test your own resources and your own resolve on your own ability to cope with a really adverse situation. Is that fair? Punishing the body to feed the soul or something. Yeah, I think I did go to Siberia in the winter time because it was more extreme and more hard and more suffering and more difficult. And I, yeah, I did that for a test. So it certainly wasn't just for fun, bit of cycle touring. And, and I think the highlights of my trip for me were the bits that went beyond just being a cycle touring bit. So the bits that are either culturally difficult or emotionally or Siberia, which is just physically exhausting. Um, cycle touring sounds fairly uh, big gray beard and middle age. Right? And I, I think I'd like to do a bit more challenging than that, I think. And you were riding in Siberia with a friend. How did that go? Yeah, this is now, I think, one of my great coups of all time. Is that I managed to persuade a friend to quit a perfectly nice job in England and fly to Siberia for three months of utter misery. And the reason I asked that friend to join me was because I'd got really bored of my own company over the last three years. So I thought it'd be very good to share the final year across Asia with a friend. 
um, we did the three months together and by the end of that we were ready to throttle each other just the intensity of it all had been so much that we were just ready to murder each other and I think on top of that also because I'd been on my own for three years I developed a very um, self-contained way of life but also a pretty selfish way of life I wasn't used to compromising and uh, um, so it was a very good experience for me in that sense but then after the three months my friend Rob he decided he wanted to continue his trip um, make it longer so he headed off to Papua New Guinea and Australia whereas I just wanted to go on a straight line to home so after the three months we we split up uh, but we're friends again now he was the best man at my wedding so it worked out okay in the end going through Siberia how did your body change? I mean, how did your body change in the whole ride? It's an interesting question. I actually put on weight overall in the trip because I, for the first time in my life, I got some muscles. So I got, I, overall, I put on weight in the trip. Um, by the end of three months in the US, I was... Uh, well, I'm never fat, but the chubbiest I'd ever been after three months of gluttony in North America, which was quite a good preparation because from there I went to Siberia and I lost a, quite a lot of weight in Siberia. I lost about... I can't remember what it was, something like 10 kilograms, quite a substantial amount of weight, um, just from the cold and the, 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 uh, the difficulty of it all. Overall, my body weight didn't change that much. And your fitness? I've always been just an averagely fit person. I'd never really done huge amounts of training, but I was always quite active. But by the end of the ride, I was amazingly fit on, on a low intensity. Now, I could cycle for eight hours a day with um, very little effort, very little exhaustion I was feel absolutely fine the next morning and I, I always remember the final few months coming through the Dolomites in um, Italy when I could just ride up these passes at great speed without getting tired and I was singing at the top of my voice and that, that was a real good feeling to be so amazingly fit. Probably passing the uh, cycle racers in their carbon fibre lycra outfits with you with your panniers and everything yeah they have a saying in italy that it's easier to buy a lighter bike than to lose weight yourself so they get these middle-aged fat men on amazing bikes and they're very arrogant of their cycling there so my bike was a wreck right now it's all wobbly and rattly and I, my clothes were all torn so they weren't they didn't really like to associate with me as a cyclist so they often wouldn't say hello to me as i said hello to them so that then just got my back up and i'd love to chase after them try to try to overtake them having made it through russia you then had a fair bit of China. Well, first I had three months in Japan. I went top to bottom of Japan. And that was such a culture shock after, after the Siberia stage. It was so, so different. Um, but just such a relief to be out of winter. So I really enjoyed that. And then I crossed over to China. And then at long last I felt I was properly heading for home. Just heading west, chasing the sunsets. No more by. boats. Required. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No more boats, no more uh, wiggling Until up. Until the channel ferry. Just, yeah, just the final one. China's the land of a billion bicycles. You still must have seemed a right old freak, though. My bike was quite a state by now. It's pretty falling apart, but nearly everyone in China rides identical one-gear clunkers, and they, they, they uh, go along very, very, very slowly. Cycling in Beijing was one of the most cycle-friendly cities I've been to, and cycling in Russia out there was just awesome. There were literally thousands of cyclists pedalling along in this huge procession with special policemen at the traffic lights to, to monitor all the cyclists. So it was really, really cycle-friendly in that sense. And, uh, and one thing I loved about being on a bike was arriving in iconic places. So cycling into Beijing and then... Uh, riding down that massive avenue to uh, Tiananmen Square 
moments like that when it's great to be on a bike I used to just get a real sense of what am I doing this is ridiculous cycling across China cruising into Tiananmen Square moments like that really make it worthwhile and they and they they highlight why traveling by bike was just I think so much better than any other form of transport really so you're on the way home essentially even though you're in the middle of China what route did you plan to take you back to England once I left Beijing I really felt like I was properly heading homewards at last um, and I decided to follow the Great Wall of China across China um, it's, it was, uh, seemed a fairly obvious route and quite an iconic and exciting one so I rode parallel to that for a, for a month right the way through uh, Inner Mongolia through Gansu and into Xinjiang province western China um, the Taklamakan Desert um, and on towards Urumqi and then from there to Central Asia so these are the bits of China where there aren't many people living because everyone thinks of China and one and a half billion people, but it's got quite a bit of emptiness, right? Yeah, the northern sweep of China is quite deserted. Uh, Inner Mongolia, there's some really gruesome coal mining towns and cities. But then after that, it's pretty empty, desolate stuff. And then further on into, into Xinjiang, it's very, very empty. Um, so I would often have about two or three days from between between even cafes. So it's quite an empty, wild experience. But then suddenly you get to a massive, massive city that's barely even on the map, but by British standards would be enormous. Urumqi, which is the most, it's the city on earth furthest from the ocean. There's two million people there, right out in the middle of absolutely nowhere with skyscrapers. So, but in Beijing, I was thinking, wow, this is an amazingly wealthy, flourishing country. Fifty miles later, you're back to mud huts and peasants and ox carts um, so it's very um, it's quite a confusing country in that sense but I, I definitely didn't really think that um, there's much chance of them taking over the world just yet from, the, from most of China that I saw was very very poor and then the journey through Central Asia appeared to be just as much about getting your visas and your papers in order as cycling the miles right it was quite a jigsaw really trying to work out which country I could get the visas for country X, Y and Z and it took quite a lot of organising and planning and certainly lots of sitting around there were two two really difficult ones Iran, I sat around for six weeks before they finally had the grace to tell me they weren't going to let me into their country so that was, I was very disappointed to miss Iran and then the other difficulty was Turkmenistan uh, this crazy country uh, which would only give me a five-day transit visa to get across the whole country which is ridiculous so um, so I faked the dates in my passport on that but the moment I'd done it the moment I inked it in I suddenly got very scared so it was quite a stupid thing to do but fortunately I made it through um, out out the other side so the bureaucracy was a nightmare in Central Asia but I, but it was definitely worth it it was really interesting to see the variety of cultures all all jumbled up in that region together in John Steinbeck's journey around America, Travels with Charlie, that he does in a pickup truck with his poodle, his giant poodle dog, he's going around and he's spending quite a long time and enjoying it. But he gets a sense in the last sort of segment, which is quite a couple of thousand miles, that he just wants to get home and he just wants to race for home and he can't take any more stimulation. Did you have that feeling or were you trying to eke it out? Like, you know, when you're reading a good book and you don't want to finish it, so you, uh, you know, ration yourself and try and slow yourself down. What was your sentiment? It was exactly both of those things. And partly I just wanted to get home. And, and I did feel that I was satiated on experiences. And I'd, riding through 
Kyrgyzstan and some little family living in a tent in the middle of nowhere would invite me to spend the night with them and I think oh I can't be bothered I've spent so many nights with nomadic tribesmen around the world and then I was thinking what am I thinking this is terrible you have to enjoy this you'll never have these experiences again and then the next day I'd be hammering 100 miles just to try and get closer to home before I could slow myself down and appreciate the what all the experiences that I was still having um, but I there's definitely a sort of law of diminishing returns I think about um, my trip in that the last year I learnt far less than I had in the first year um, which is probably a good reason not to do a four-year trip I was torn part of me desperately desperately wanted to get home I was really excited and, and I realized that I was actually going to succeed and that was really exciting and I wanted to get home but once I realized that I started to get a lot happier and content and I was very self-sufficient on the road and and that's such a nice feeling that I wanted that to carry on forever and there was a real I suppose the final pivotal point I mean it was the final pass in the Alps the Simplon pass in uh, top of Italy coming into Switzerland I think anyway it's the final pass and on the top of that I sat down for a while thinking that from here it's downhill from here to England so I can either freewheel down that way and head for home and a new life which was actually scarier a new beginning or I can turn around and pedal to Australia which I never made it and it was a it was an interesting time just sitting there um, and I thought that to go home was actually the harder and braver thing to do so that's what I had to do. What were those first few days like back at home? They were very strange really because in one sense I was so happy I was back with my friends and family I was back in England which I'd been away from for years so I was so happy with, with all that but it was also quite a whirlwind of um reunions and and I'd been used to such a slow paced solitary life Um, my friend said that I spoke very slowly and I was quite spaced out I think it took me a while to to speed up again Um, and actually at first I was just happy but it took me a couple of months really before I started to miss the old life and uh, and that was about the time when the questions came of what are you going to do next which is which was always quite a scary thing to contemplate looking back on the trip how has it changed who you are I don't really think it's changed my personality fundamentally. The the person I'm married to, she spent four years working in the city in London. I spent four years bumming around on my bike, and yet our personalities are still compatible enough for us to have wanted to get married. So I don't think my basic personality changed. I think what it really did was just refine and polish away the edges and make me just think more about the priorities of what's important for me and and just to... really focused me to try and make the most of the opportunities that I have in life um, rather than actually drastically changing who I am. But you've written a couple of books and you're going to the South Pole and maybe you know you're going to do more of this stuff in in the future. Has that trip equipped you for that or qualified you for that or just made you think that that's something that you want to do? You want to explore and go on adventures to wild and faraway places when I got first got back from the trip I really hoped that it it had cured me of my wanderlust I really wanted nothing more than to be completely happy just doing a normal job in England that's what I really wanted and to a large degree it's knocked quite a chunk of the wanderlust out of me I don't feel quite so itchy just to jet off as I used to but it obviously hasn't cured me entirely and one of the things I've done from my bike trips I've been going to loads of schools doing talks and trying to motivate kids to not necessarily to cycle around the world but just to do whatever they want to do or at least to try it and I think if if I can now make a career from a having lots of fun doing the adventures which I love doing but b if I can actually make it useful and relevant as well by trying to motivate um, particularly children then I think that will be very satisfying so ideally 
it's quite hard to make a, a, a living from this life but ideally I would like to now I think dedicate myself to trying to become a full-time adventurer whatever that means and looking back on the trip do you think of it as a bicycling trip a, a trip involving cycling or was cycling really just a means of transport and the trip was the trip do you feel a connection to the bicycle I feel more of a connection to a bike now than I did before because I'm, I'm not really particularly into cycling I'm not really a cyclist but I did come to love the bicycle as a machine just for the incredible efficiency of it the way I could, I could carry my entire worldly possessions on it and still cover 100 miles in a day without being very tired and with just a few bananas as fuel so I, I'm now a strong believer in the importance of bicycles for our well certainly for our society but all over the world they were so useful so I'm I'm a lover of bicycles but I'm not particularly a lover of bicycling if that makes sense I'm not massively into biking now but I am quite keen um, I try to advocate it as much as possible and you get out on the bike well yeah at the moment I do because I've just recovered from a broken foot so I'm doing a lot of cycling at the moment and I am actually really enjoying that Um, it's certainly yeah, I am enjoying that, so maybe I will start doing more. But um, I have hardly done any since I got back from my trip. But I would like to go on a tandem holiday with my wife. She hates this sort of lifestyle, but I think I might be able to persuade her onto a tandem if there's a promise of a shower and a hotel at the end of the day. That could be a good compromise. The river flows, it flows to the sea. Wherever that river goes, that's where I want to be. That was Alistair Humphreys, and if you want to read his book, uh, there are two of them. The first book is called Moods of Future Joys, and the second is called Thunder and Sunshine, published by iBooks. I think Thunder and Sunshine is currently in the Stanford's bestseller list, so you can get it from there or any other good bookseller. That's all for this week. This is Resonance 104.4 FM, and you've been listening to The Bike Show. the shitty tree Hi, this is Brent Barber, the founding director of the Bicycle Film Festival, and this is Resonance FM. Ride on until the break of dawn, because you don't stop. Uh-uh.